What truly matters is teachers' expertise. The most important tip for new teachers is to set out your boundaries. 44% of jobs will be automated. It reinforces cycles of disadvantage. Hello listeners and lovers of learning and welcome to episode 36 of the Education Research Reading Room, the podcast that brings you into the discussion with inspiring educators and education researchers. I'm Ollie Lovell and it's a pleasure to be your host in the ERRR. I'll start today by acknowledging the Woiwurrung and Boonwurrung people of the Kulin Nation on whose lands this podcast was recorded and pay respects to Elders past, present and emerging, as well as to any Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander people who may be listening today. Today we're speaking with Jung Zhao. Jung is a Foundation Distinguished Professor in the School of Education at the University of Kansas. Jung is an author, speaker and thinker on education. He's been a professor at the University of Oregon, Michigan State University and has also worked with a number of other eminent institutions. Jung's books include Who's Afraid of the Big Bad Dragon? Why China Has the Best and Worst Education System in the World? Counting What Counts, Reframing Education Outcomes, Reach for Greatness, Personalizable Education for All Children, and What Works May Hurt, Side Effects in Education, about which we're speaking today. He's also written several other popular education books. He's a recipient of a host of educational awards, and his work has gained international acclaim and recognition. In this episode, we dive into Jung's assertion that education research should pay more attention to side effects and our wide-ranging discussion touches on such important issues as East Asian education, trickle-down effects of high-stakes testing, the role of culture in education, creativity within education, aptitude-treatment interactions, early reading, Jung's vision for education, and much, much more. A reminder that if you're keen to, you can jump onto ollilovell.com and sign up for my mailing list, through which I share blogs, podcasts, and more from the world of education, and also... Today is a very exciting day. Being the 36th episode, and at one episode each month, this episode marks the three-year anniversary of the ERRR podcast. It's been an incredible journey so far, and running this podcast has enriched my life and my learning about education more than I could have imagined, and I hope that you've found engaging with the Education Research Reading Room equally rewarding. At this milestone, I'd also like to acknowledge my fantastic audio engineer, George Gonzalez, and the team from Noda Lab, who have been doing an incredible job of enhancing the sound quality and making me sound smarter than I really am for the last couple of years. If you're looking for a podcasting audio solution, look no further than N-O-D-A, nodalab.com. George didn't know I was going to say that as well, so uh, <laughs> props to you, George. You've been doing a great job. A big thank you also to the Patreon supporters who have helped keep the show on the airwaves over the past few years. And if you feel like making a happy birthday contribution or even a festive season contribution to the ERRR podcast, you can jump onto patreon.com forward slash ERRR to do so. And listeners, another exciting milestone is that the ERRR podcast has just busted through 100,000 downloads just a couple of weeks ago. And it seems that more and more people are tuning in each and every day. Thanks to those who've been spreading the word, and if you're tuning in for the first time, a big welcome to you. This is a nice episode to mark the three anniversary of the ERRR. It's about questioning assumptions and brings together many topics that have been explored over the past few years. So without further ado, let's jump straight into episode 36 of the ERRR podcast with Jung Zhao. Professor Jung Zhao, welcome to the Education Research Reading Room. Well, thank you. Glad to be here. The first question we usually ask people, Jung, is 
If you meet someone new and they ask you, hi, Jung, what is it that you do? What's your answer? Well, that's a... Many people have asked me a question. I don't think I have a, a best answer. I think uh, uh, what I do is that we uh, try to prepare better um, educators and administrators for the future for our children. So I, I teach. I'm a professor. I conduct research. I write uh, articles and books and trying to find out better ways to help our children grow. A noble goal. One of the... Well, the second question I've started asking guests recently to get a bit of an idea of where, where they're coming from in, in their work and their thinking is, what do you believe we should take to be the purpose of school-based education? Well, I think there are many, but for me, I think a school-based education, which is really, uh, in many ways, um, uh, a collective uh, approach or, or poor resources from various sectors to help uh, young children uh, to grow, to grow into uh, responsible community members, to grow into self-sufficient and happy uh, individuals, and uh, to help each and everyone realizing their potential so they can uh, create value for others through which they'll be valuable and happy. Okay. Okay. Fantastic. Now, you start off your book, the, the book, we're, book we're talking about today is your book, What Works May Hurt, Side Effects in Education. So, you start off your book saying the following, having grown up in China, I had personal experience with testing and accountability. I knew how high-stakes testing corrupts education, turning it into test preparation. I knew how a test-driven education causes damage to the physical and psychological well-being of students, parents, and teachers. I knew that a test-driven education does not result in citizens who can defend a democracy, nor does it produce the creative and innovative individuals needed in the modern economy, which is things you've just alluded to uh, when speaking about the purpose of education. So I'm curious, what role did your upbringing have in directing your career and bringing you to the current book that we're discussing today? Well, I think, you know, um, everybody, you know, is uh, live a life uh, and uh, then that life uh, has an uh, uh, interest impact on their future life. So I, I believe all research actually is autobiographical. And uh, so the, my upbringing has, has tremendous impact on me, and that I believe the same for everybody is that, uh, to me, you know, growing up in China, uh, I understand that education system. I see that it does great things, and it... Uh, does things that uh, it's not desirable. So it depends, it actually has a lot of impact on me to think about why educational outcomes are often culturally based, value driven. That's why I, I wrote the book. And for some, you know, the, the same impact may be valued, uh, you know, like test driven uh, has definitely certain outcomes that are valued by people. But at the same time, the same results can be viewed as negative. So to me, my upbringing really helps me understand how education a lot of times is much more than so-called scientific. It's much more than data. It has a lot to do with uh, what we value. Mm, mm. And, and I guess it gives you that, that living experience as the backdrop, which you've, you've mentioned there. So with that as the backdrop, could you give us a bit of a history of your career to date? Well, that's been a long time. I think, uh, you know, unlike you, Ali, you look, you look quite young. And I have uh, been in this world for a long time, many decades. I, I guess, you know, I 
grew up uh, in a, a village in China and went to school in the local schools, you know, village schools, then moved to middle and high school and boarded and then went to college in a, a big city now called Chongqing in China, taught college and uh, uh, did my um, uh, kind of degree in uh, educational psychology and both master's degree and a PhD as well in the U.S. and has become a I uh, was become a professor at the uh, Michigan State University and there for a long time, really doing research on educational technology, bilingual education, and also educational psychology. Then I, I left there and become a, a distinguished professor at uh, uh, University of Oregon, most focused on educational leadership, policy analysis, and uh, also got started into doing research on creativity, entrepreneurship education, about three years ago, I left the University of Oregon and went to the University of Kansas as a foundation distinguished professor in a department of leadership and policy studies and continued my kind of research on really what the future holds, what talents we need, but also more important focus on what our children deserve to be, to become. And, you know, of course, during the process, I've had a lot of uh, uh uh, activities and the collaboration and work experiences back in China, quite a lot of experiences in the UK and of course in Australia, in various uh, states of Australia, as well as affiliated with uh, VU and Melbourne Graduate School of Education. So it's so quite an uh, eclectic, diverse uh, experience, but most of my career would be teaching, research, uh, and uh, spread the message through writing and uh, uh, presentations. Fantastic. Now, in your book, What Works May Hurt, your main thesis is that education research has given insufficient attention to what you call as side effects in it with education. Can you please summarize this for listeners? Yeah, I, I think, you know, the, uh, uh, the very simple thing is that in education, since you're running a podcast about uh, reading educational research, is it is that... Uh, most of the time in education or education researchers, even actually in practice, that people always look and say, what works? You know, they're looking for evidence to say, okay, does it work? And it's like, you know, medical doctors or med medical pharmaceutical companies always look for, does this cure certain disease? Does this help? But they generally ignore the idea that, you know, but does it hurt while it works? You know, we know in medicine that, you know, if something works, it often causes trouble. Imagine a medicine, medical research says, well, we say, does it cure any disease? But at the same time, does it harm anybody else? Does it harm other parts of your body? I think in education, we have just somehow accepted that maybe education can only do good, ignoring what it can do bad. So that's the side effects. So that is, uh, in other words, that we are very interested in proving if something works, and we do not, you know, look at, you know, when it works, it might hurt. That's the side effects. Makes a lot of sense. Let's let's add a bit of color to this idea with an example, and I'd love for us to jump into chapter four, which is about East East Asian education, and that was probably my favorite chapter in the book. So. You talked about... Oh, I hope you like all the chapters, but anyway, thank you. Yeah. yeah. So you talked about why does Asia do better? And you talked about some key, key points about why East Asian students tend to do better in PISA and other related 
international kind of standardized tests. Did you want to start us off there and give us give us that as a backdrop? Well, yeah, yeah, of course. You know, there, uh, you know, uh, a lot of the reasons is quite cultural. In the first, in the first of all, I think uh, parents, you know, have a, a fairly narrow view of what education means. Education uh, uh, means, you know, doing well in schooling, you know, in school. So that's uh, that's why. So uh, parents sacrifice. Parents make sure children spend all the time on completing school assigned tasks. So that is, uh, you know, that is your. You spend almost all your time focusing on the few subjects that's uh, tested. So that's uh, number one. You invest a lot more. Uh, and second, secondly, that is uh, because those uh, subjects, the test scores, are so important in determining your life's future. That as individual students uh, and also teachers, you know, because their uh, uh, you know reputation, their uh, well-being is connected to their students. Uh, performance on those tests. Well, like NAPLAN, the same way, like in NAPLAN in Australia, you know, is that is NAPLAN actually forces schools, especially teachers in Australia case, to focus on the few subjects that's been tested. So that, that's, you know, time and energy. Uh, and also at the, the, the same time is that uh, with that narrowing is this uh, tremendous competition. So you select students, you reward students who do well on those tests. And again, so as culturally, you are already grooming those people who are do well on testing and then of course then you have uh, uh, evolved a very sophisticated uh, apparatus that supports your testing you know out of school tutoring and also in in class and you know, for example students devote most of the time preparing for tests you know they they try not you know necessarily in what's been tested but how it's been tested preparing skills you know knowledge so that there's a lot of that, that kind of things, but I would say the most important thing is that uh, the narrow definition of what education means, you know, education basically means doing well on school subjects. And then you put all your, you know, your energy, your resource into that. And of course, then you have the whole system evolved to compete for teachers, for kids, for schools that do well on testing. Yeah, okay, that that makes sense. And I guess with that narrow definition, you can just focus and hone in on the things that are going to get the results on the test and you ad- allocate more time to them. Makes sense. Also, what I was interested was that parental spending. So you had some interesting data in the yes. book about parental spending. And just for listeners, Benefit, for example, you talked about how in Korea, parental or family spending on education compared to government spending is 0.8 to 1. So they spend all... Households spend 80% as much on education and almost match the spending of government, which is crazy and, and which I don't think is often, often we quote data about percentage of country GDPs spent on education and those numbers obviously don't factor in that family spending. So that was really interesting. In your book, you quoted Tucker and Tucker was kind of for high stakes things. And I wanted to read out what Tucker says is some of the benefits or in, in his view of, of test-based education. And then we'll go into a little bit more about your, your rebuttal of his claims. So Tucker says, in countries with gateway exam systems of this, of this sort, every student has a strong incentive to take tough courses and to work hard in school. A student who does not do that will not earn the credentials needed to achieve her dream, whether that dream is becoming a brain surgeon or auto mechanic. Because the exams are scored externally, the student knows that the only way to move on is to meet the standard. Because they are national or provincial standards, the exams cannot be gamed. Because the exams are of very high quality, they cannot be test prepped. 
The only way to succeed in them is to actually master the material. And because the right parties were involved in creating the exams, students know that their credentials they will earn will be honoured. And when their high school says that they are college and career ready, colleges and employers will agree. So, I mean, that sounds pretty good to me. Let us, let us know your thoughts on this. Well, first of all, I mean, uh, it does not really understand. And many of the statements are actually a force. You know, uh, you, know you, you can go out. You know, for example, let's see, when you have those, uh, uh, you know, if it's test-driven, the gateways, students take harder courses. That's just not true. And if you take, uh, uh, you know, in many places, if they can get credit, for a softer course, they would do it. Actually, you know, in Australia, I just take an example of this yeah. one. You know, you, you do ATAR scores. Uh -huh. You got a lot of Chinese native speakers who will take a Chinese course, right? Mm -hmm. You know, mm -hmm. and then that's soft because for them it's a free uh, high score. Why not, right? That's, mm -hmm. that's not true, you know. And, and so, the, the you know, because, you know, what people are interested in are good scores and not necessarily the content, okay? The second thing is that... I'll just cut in there. I, I definitely agree with you. I was curious... Because I'm here, I teach the Victorian Certificate of Education and, and subjects at end of year time scaled in relation to each other. Is that a thing that happens in relation to Gaokao, like the, the high, high stakes test in China and things like that? Well, but see, in China, the, the issue is that, so, so Tucker is wrong in, in the sense that, you know, if he, he was talking about China, I believe he was, is that in China, your, your grades don't matter. It's not like, you know, so it's all the final exams. So that does not encourage you to take more challenging courses, you know. Mm. That aside, but also the, uh, when he talks about the idea about, for example, the, you know, when the high school says you are career and college ready, you, you know, and, um, employers and government buy it. That's not true. You know, that's not, not, you know, because you've just taken this course and then suddenly employers think you're ready, you know. The, the, and uh, I, I, this, uh, not that connection, automatic connection, but more, more importantly, you know, this uh, rosy picture he painted, even even if you accept everything is true, that's still very problematic because that, you know, uh, for example, what does job require? The, the disconnection uh, between what jobs require, what societies require versus uh, uh, what tests you have, you know, we see the huge mismatch between any test and actual life skills, you know, that's people have been struggling with that for a long time. Uh, the same thing like, you know, in, in, I mean, again, I want to just bring this back to Australian context. Just look at ATAR, you know, how ATAR is almost irrelevant to a lot of things in life and uh, how, how would that work? And, but also, in, I think, uh, 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 even more problematic view is that education, you can design education almost, you know, without considering the students. The students like, you know, who they are, you know, you know, what their interests are, what their strengths are, you know, what their social economic conditions are. We actually believe all the students, if they work hard, they can achieve, they can all uh, take the test. And also any kind of those tests, again, I want to bring back to ATAR, is, uh, is a norm reference test. You actually manufacture losers. That is, uh, there are only many, so many spots, very few spots that are highly regarded. And... In order for you to be on top, others have to be, you know, uh, below you. You know, like you look again, you look at ATAR, you took get a 99. That means you have 99% of other kids have to be worse than you. And, uh, you know, Melbourne, you know, Melbourne Uni can only take so many students. So no matter what you do, how many, what kind of test scores you got, you know, you are still compared to others. So that's kind of a, 
a gross misunderstanding of reality of education and or especially education in China, an overly kind of uh, naive glorification of uh, high stakes testing. And if uh, Tucker truly know the pressure, the negative uh, damages, the uh, side effects of all of this high stakes testing, uh, he would not say that. He should uh, probably send his own children. He should have lived in Japan, Korea, Singapore, China before he would have said any of those words. Fair enough. That, and that's a, a reasonable invitation to Tucker. I'm not sure where Tucker is in their life or if they have kids or, well, it's or the, whatever. Yes, he's retired. Actually, he's, okay. uh, he's, uh, yeah, yeah, he's retired now. He's, he lives in the U.S. But uh, anyway, that was uh, uh, he was quite powerful, influential as uh, founder of the National Center for Education and the Economy in the U.S., who pushed the standards and testing for a long time. Interesting. Now, now you did mention there about the, the high stakes, the pressure that students mm-hmm. feel. And I'm sure a lot of people would be very familiar with the idea that kind of year 12 students would would feel pressure. But I, I would also imagine that some people think, well, you know, school's pretty chilled out up till till year 12 and it's only year 12 where there's high stakes. But you, in your book, introduced this idea of the trickle-down effects of these high-stakes tests. Did you want to talk briefly about that? Yeah, the, the trickle-down, I, I don't know if it happens in, in Australia, but actually this could happen in Finland. Many people don't think Finland has tested. As long as you have at the end of, of, of school uh, high-stakes, that determines your future, your life, based on one test. And mm. uh, As any reasonable being would try to do, you want to guarantee how to get there. It's like training for the marathon, right? You can start as soon as possible. So, but you know, of course, Finland does not have the same system allows uh, uh, children to choose schools. So that's why Finland, the testing of high-stakes tests in Finland uh, uh, has less impact than Asian countries. Let's say in China, for example, if you want to get a high test score 12th grade, and that normally comes from uh, a good high school that has already been producing those. So you want to get into the high school. In order to get into the high school, you have to pass a test at uh, ninth grade. So then you want to go to have prepared for the ninth grade test. And the ninth grade test trickles down to, you know, uh, uh, sixth, uh, seventh grade. Because at the end of elementary school, you want to go to a good uh, middle school that starts, you know, from seventh grade. So you have to go to uh, prepare for that test. And that test takes place at end of you know elementary school, but in order to go to good elementary school, you probably want to pass you know uh, get in there. Uh, the selective elementary schools in China always give some assessment, so you better go to a, a good kindergarten. That is, uh, and so all of these those things basically you have to prepare for this test that's going to happen 12, 13 years later, uh, because you every level of schooling is selecting kids and and preparing them for that. It's like, you know, they are uh, children athletes. Like, you know, we select them, we pre-select them, you're age five, then we, we go out, we groom you for a long time. So that's the trickle-down effect. It, it does, it looks like so far away, but it's not there. I mean, in Australia, uh, in many ways, you, you could get to that level if, uh, you know, like you allowed uh, people to select schools. And if you test kids for the final ATAR, in many ways, I think Australia kind of is getting into that, you know, based on your NAPLAN stuff. Mm. Yeah, that's interesting. And I guess there's probably broader cultural factors and drivers of various approaches that yeah. that have influ- that influenced to what extent that trickle of, of trickle down effect 
does kind of come to fruition. And th- one of those drivers I'd love to talk on now is kind of the, the legacy of history. And I, I love it when books like yours bring, bring in historical context as a frame for what they're writing about. And in your book, you talk about the idea of Kurdu, which is the imperial exam in China. And you relate that to what's happening today and you relate it to the idea of creativity. Could you please um, tell, tell listeners what Kurdu is and what impact you think it's still having today? Well, Kyrgyz was basically a, a really um, an approach to select government officials or to distribute from the others' angle. You know, from the emperor's angle, you want to you have uh, uh, civil servants to help you govern. Uh, on the lower end, you know, for for most people in the commoners, it is a way to for social mobility. So that started around about the Sri Dynasty, and I don't know about uh, nearly two thousand years ago. Uh, in the 600, I think uh, it is really uh, trying to use exam to select people. You know, you which one is not much different from today's kind of civil servants exams in, in in many ways. I think that that's how it started. And different dynasties, different emperors may have different forms and formats. And but overall idea it is you have to pass certain exams. Uh, in order to qualify to have uh, uh, to become a, a civil servant, which you know comes with power, with social status, you know that's becomes very desirable position for that. So that was uh, the the beginning of Kudri, and uh, it, I mean it is uh, and today it's you know we would call it uh, the beginning of uh, meritocracy. You know every society needs some way to select people to distribute powerful um, um, social resources. Mm. And that's just one of them. Got it. And you, you talked about how, in fact, I might read a quote from the book. You said, because of this examination system, curious genius, geniuses were diverted from learning mathematics and conducting controllable experiments. Because of this system, the geniuses could not accumulate crucial human capital that was essential for scientific revolution. As a result, the discoveries of natural phenomena could only be based on sporadic observations and could not be upgraded into modern science. And you, you also relate to the fact that the Ming Dynasty, for example, at the time of the Industrial Re- Revolution, had all the ingredients for a revolution like the Industrial Revolution for over 600 years or so, but it never happened. Well, obviously, the Ming Dynasty yeah. wasn't around for 600 years, but the yeah. China, China at that time. And you talk about, as was alluded to there, how people like Einstein wouldn't have been nurtured, in your argument, in the Chinese education system because they would have been diverted into these high-stakes exams. Did you want to say anything more about that? Yeah, precisely, and thanks for mentioning that. Because, you know, the the argument I was making in the book was that China was a great superpower in the agriculture age, but never entered the Industrial Revolution because Industrial Revolution required a diversity of talents, uh, a diverse and also a lot of creativity and, and uh, ingenuity of people. Uh, and uh, But China had a lot of early, in the, actually, I would call them sporadic random inventions because it had a lot of people. But in modern sciences, you know, in, during industrial revolution, modern science and technology requires a lot more people to work on it, and it has to be cumulative observations. However, because of this country or the impure exams, you know, all the people with resources, with talents, would be allured or diverted to try to compete and win in that exam. And also, 
you know, no exam examines actually how creative you are. And our examinations are mostly questions about uh, existing situations and looking for existing answers. So it's about compliance. So that is, uh, you know, but, you know, as any, again, I won't say rational human being, you want to have a better life, you want to have a good life, you want to have social mobility, and the pathway to that social mobility is not through other discoveries, and the reward does come from uh, passing those exams, so you need to comply, and uh, the content, the subject will be very narrow, and so any other exploration, any other kind of creativity or diversity are suppressed because they were not rewarded. So most people, families have with resources would make sure their children and they can prepare for the exam so they become homogenized. You know, Einstein, if he desired to be a social servant and work for the you know, emperor, he would have to do the same, give up his own pursuit because that his own pursuit, interest, talent, uh, are not uh, valued. And so they give up. And so that's why and how I think China missed the opportunity to start the industrial revolution. Now, when I heard about the imperial exams a few years ago, and when I heard about them, I thought they were a great idea because it demonstrated that at the time, at least by my reading of what whatever I read back then about the imperial exams, that China was a meritocracy. So there was actually social mobility, and anyone could take these exams. I mean, given a farmer probably didn't have that much time to study for them, but realistically, anyone could study for them, which was probably quite different to what was happening in Europe at the time with kind of royal families and old money and things like that. So initially, my reading was that, oh, great, China had social mobility, but you're actually saying there's large side effects to this. Oh, yeah. I mean, it was definitely great, you know, compared to, you know, uh, uh, others hereditary. You just don't pass on to your future generations. This way you allowed some people to emerge, to become, you know, possible leaders. But, you know, that social mobility, I would say, was still very small because the number of people who got in the system was not a lot, you know. And But that's why I call this the ingenious design by the emperor. Uh, in many ways, you know, I would say the origin of this is that, you know, as emperor, if you just gain power, who do you want? And well, there are two things I'm worried about. One is that you want people to help you govern better, Another one, you're always fearful or wonder someone is going to overthrow you. Who has the power to overthrow you? Is the generals who helped you gain the throne? Is all your closest relatives? You look at, uh, you know, the European history. Most of the kings and uh, were got rid of by the relatives. In China, it's the same way. So I think uh, the Chinese emperors were pretty smart to say, okay, let me actually get rid of my generals and my relatives and my brothers and all those things. I've given them. They don't involve in the governing of the government. Also, they may try to get people from the, you know, um, ordinary people to work with me, to work for me. But also another smart thing is that those who have the smarts and uh, resources to possibly could have uprise against me and would now would work for me because I have this pathway to get you involved. So that's a very smart, I was called a very, very smart, you know, uh, kind of ploy to get a lot of people uh, work. So China maintained a really powerful uh, agriculture empire for a long time. Mm. And that's actually, I would say, the contribution of Kuj. That's, that, that's but a... Because of the same Kuj, you know, speak of side effects, then you basically have all the trouble. So, you know, the same thing, that's why I'm not really 
criticize any education system, I call this a value-driven system, depends on what you want. If you want a stable, homogeneous, uh, in a relatively peaceful, a large empire, the Kurdish is very good to hold people at bay. Mm, that makes sense. It's, an, it's a fascinating take. We mentioned culture earlier, and I was kind of, as I was reading this book and I was reading about testing systems in East Asia, I was thinking about the interaction between education and culture because obviously high stakes education or high stakes testing didn't come out of nowhere. It came out of the culture and it it may help to reinforce a culture which focuses on various things over others. But I was considering that there may be a danger of thinking of things, and I'm not saying you necessarily painted it this way, but there is potentially a danger of thinking of it as high testing creates a culture that suppresses creativity, for example, whereas actually we may have a bit of a bi-directional and kind of cyclic um, relationship there. What are your thoughts on that? Well, I completely agree with you, Ali, because I think well, education is part of the culture, and the culture has a lot of educational functions. So that is, uh, you know, I, I think in it's, uh, they are really, uh, like you say, it's bi-directional, it's a two-way street, it's really a mutually enhancing so I, I think is that uh, the the culture you know, supported that. the birth of you know this high stakes testing actually was uh, uh, was based on this this culture. And we actually look at example, you know this uh, uh, why Japan abandoned Kyoto more quickly. You know when the uh, the Western power, you know when uh, the U.S. you know uh, went to Japan, Japan decided abandon. They want to become more uh, yeah, Europeanized. So they abandoned Koju earlier. So that, that culture, even though they adopted Koju from China's Tang Dynasty, and but then they gave up very quickly. And that is a culturally, they were probably not as uh, you know deeply rooted uh, in the Koju tradition. But also, you know, because of that, Japan actually uh, become early modernized in, in as East Asian country. So this. Uh, Another thing is that, uh, for example, I think uh, in, in the book I also mentioned that you know that a lot of this uh, achievement is um, is uh, culturally based. Is that you know the Asian kids, Chinese kids, for example, who were, went to Australia education systems and uh, Australia schools, they do as well as those students in Shanghai, which is almost has nothing to do with the educational system, right? In that way, it's because it's uh, they carry that because I don't think it's genetic. I think it's definitely cultural. Yeah, that's 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 interesting. We've t- we've been talking about high stakes testing, we've, and we've been talking in many ways about the homogenizing effect of kind of driving every student towards the same goal. And often we think about this as being driven by these kinds of high stakes exams, where the goal is to learn the stuff that's going to be on the exam, and you're not really rewarded or incentivized for learning anything outside of that. But another thing that you did in the book that I found very interesting was you related it to modern this homogenizing effect or goal to modern education and you linked it to the idea of effect sizes, which is something that we've explored through this podcast um, in episode 17 and 18 with Adrian Simpson and John Hattie, if people want to go back and check those chats out. Could you please tell us how the goal of homogenization is captured within the effect within the goal of effect sizes? Well, since you have uh, yeah, John Hattie, who is kind of the king of... Uh, Effect sizes or misuse of effect sizes, you know, you know I've been criticized of uh, John's work as well. Is that, but anyway, so what well, the effect size is very simple, like you know, 
you want to find out, you basically always have a control group, experimental group. You have the, so the, 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 this idea is that, you know, you have a, a larger difference in the mean average and divided by variation. That is the differences among all the students. So if they're the bigger the variation, the smaller the effect size, right? So that's how you divide it. So in order to get a bigger effect size, you got to homogenize. You got to have uh, reduce smaller, you know, uh, variations among your students' population. So that's a very simple way to think about it. So when we talk, when PISA talks about, you know, high-performing countries that talk about both a higher average and a smaller variation. So you got a bigger size, in bigger, you know, effect size. That's why the most educational researchers trying to achieve is to say, how can I reduce, you know, the differences, but also increase the larger mean? So that's how you get that. And that's why homogenization always produce better overall results and bigger side effects. In terms of effect sizes, yeah. Really interesting point. Yeah. Which actually I'm glad, you know, you're talking to John Hattie and I don't know how, how much you challenged him, but uh, you should. You know, you read in my book a, a lot of challenge of the visible learning stuff too. Sure. Well, um, I'll send you a link to episode 18 afterwards and you can, <laughs> you can tell me if I challenge him enough or not. Okay. <laughs> Another really important point you bring up in your book, kind of moving on now, is is the idea that educational interventions and approaches do not do not impact everyone the same way. And you introduce this idea, which many listeners might be interested, uh, familiar with already, of aptitude treatment interactions. Could you tell us what uh, an aptitude treatment interaction is? Oh, thanks, Arthur. That's a really important concept that's really been missing in, in schools. Basically, uh, when we talk about aptitude. It is like uh, the individual differences. That is, uh, you know, uh, for example, your at your attitude, your ability, your knowledge at the different times, and the treatment, of course, is what you receive. And so the idea is that you know, for the same approach, can have different effect on different student populations. That's fairly simple. It's like taking medicine. Like for example, your aptitude would be like say, for if you are. Uh, a child, you know, that is your young, your small body, and the medicine would work you on different than work with adults, you know, and so that's the same idea. And in education, that's very crucial because people always look for panacea. That is, they say, okay, we want one thing that works for everybody, but it doesn't. And also, the, the aptitude is really individual differences. That is, uh, you know, your family, where you live, geography, everything that I'm like interpreting the more broadly, that is going to have different impacts. So that's why, you know, by the way, you mentioned John Hattie, visible learning does not take into that consideration. It's like, for example, you know, all these uh, big effect sizes, they may work for some people, they may not work for others. Okay, could, could, you, could you maybe... Color this for us. In in your book, you you quote Gronquist and Vlacho's twenty two thousand and eight paper, one size fits all question mark, and you use this as your main example of aptitude treatment interactions and side effects in this chapter. Could you could you tell us a bit more about this this study? Uh, well, you know that's the study of the in, I think in, in Sweden is basically found out uh, high IQ or high uh, probability teachers work well work better for high achieving students, but may cause damages to low achieving students. And uh, those teachers who may not have a high uh, uh, test scores, and, uh, but you know, have a high uh, kind of EQ or emotional quotient, uh, work better with low achieving students. So that is uh, the, by the way, actually this is, um, if you notice, you know, the, 
a lot of the studies I found uh, in, for this book are not necessarily what, what I would say, okay, uh, best evidence, because uh, I've been, uh, that's why I wrote this book. We need to question this, because most studies, I would say the majority, for 99% of educational research, does not deliberately consider side effects. And so that, that's just one uh, I called, uh, called ATI, the opted treatment. Another one I probably used in, in the book is written about this uh, uh, charters or school vouchers. You know, school vouchers benefit certain children with different family backgrounds, different family characteristics, but can hurt others. So, I mean, just then you kind of suggested that maybe this Swedish study isn't the best science. In the book, though, you did write that the teachers who were the best students can be the worst nightmares for low-achieving students, as the Swedish researchers found. The best students, when they become teachers, do not benefit their lowest-achieving students. On the contrary, they cause them harm. That's a pretty definitive statement that you wrote in the book, and you kind of, just then when you spoke, you kind of offered a bit more of a softer interpretation of the study. Do you, would you, if you wrote the book again, would you put it in the same kind of certain terms as you did in the first iteration or, or do you still stand uh, by I, I that might, interpretation? I think I was probably doing some quote because the idea uh, is that there, that's, you know, one study can never, you know, prove all these things. I was hoping that would uh, stimulate interest. People would do more research along the same lines because I think, you know, like, uh, again, you know, the, uh, that study, you know, trig- uh, I kind of picked my interest because of uh, the you know recommendations derived from PISA that all teachers have to be high achieving, you know, high test scores. I'm sure Australia, like New South Wales and Victoria, uh, you are really up, uh, kind of um, uh, increasing the demand for teacher candidates. They have to have an ATA score of how many, how many. I think I was more trying to uh, question that piece. So. I, I might, um, uh, I don't think if I'm going to tone down uh, that, if I were writing again, I might look for more evidence than that just one study. Because I don't believe one study uh, uh, really proves uh, much, but at least it points the right direction. A challenging thing to say whether this oversweeping policy is correct. And and of course, uh, over there, I also, uh, I think, talking about, about how Finland does not really pick students from so-called high, the top uh, one-third high school graduates either. Fair enough. I guess the reason why I brought this up was because at some times in the book, I felt like the the, the research was treated very sensitively and, and very kind of tentatively in, in a similar way to the way you've been speaking today. But there were sections where you kind of then took the study and you what I read out then was, was a direct quote. Yeah. Uh, in your writing, which was the best students when they become teachers do not benefit their was lowest that a direct quote? Yeah, of you. On the contrary, okay, they yeah. cause them harm. So the, I guess I felt like I, I needed to challenge a few statements like that in the book um, <laughs> that I felt yeah. that I felt were kind of going a bit too far in, in their interpretation of the research. Well, I'm glad I used a direct quote. That means, you know, I was more trying to spread the message than trying to necessarily endorse everything. So, but that's good. And just by way of interest, because I did go go back and have a look at that study, it also had some other interesting findings. Looking at that study, kind of, to me, it looked like they'd. I'm, I'm sure you're familiar with the idea of p hacking. Mm-hmm, yeah, yeah, yeah. So for listeners, it's the idea that if you get enough data 
and you run enough analyses, you're going to find a lot of effects. So some other some other findings from that study that you perhaps could have reported if you if you wanted to were boys' school performance seems to suffer from being matched to high GPA teachers. The effect for boys is negative and statistically significant. So that's boys do badly with high achieving teachers, whereas the effect for girls is close to zero and insignificant. And perhaps my favorite from that study was female teachers with high GPA ranks are not good for any students and particularly bad for boys. Well, I'm very happy you actually went out. I will actually, I, will, I hope everybody will be like, it rents, go dig into those studies. I think they are uh, the, you know, again, you know, I can precisely because I don't believe one study can say a lot. So I was more kind of picking up the certain reports that uh, that's meaningful. Uh, again, you know, the whole book was not trying to say we got enough uh, studies. I'm, I'm more trying to say, okay, there's enough hints that should uh, uh, make side effects a big topic in our research and our policy and practice. Mm, yeah, couldn't agree more. Couldn't agree more. And it's, and it's a great point. Another one, another study I wanted to touch upon was the one by Kern and Friedman. And you quote them, you quote them and what they wrote was, early reading was associated with early education success. This was drawing from what was called the Terman Life Cycle study, study, which was a really long scale study on, you know, over a thousand people. So early reading of the high achievers, there was only high achievers, only um, young people with IQs of over 135 were included in this study. So early reading was associated with early education of successes, but was also associated with worse long-term outcomes, including less overall educational attainment, Mm -hmm. worse teenage and adult adjustment, and increased alcohol use. So basically they're suggesting that early reading is associated with these negative outcomes later on in life. You conclude... It at least suggests the existence of the possibility that efforts to boost early reading could backfire in the long term. What do you think, something that I've started to do more and more as I read education research is ask what's, what's the mechanism, right? Because if we can understand the mechanism, then we can actually do something about it. So That's what we call the pathology, you know, yeah. Yeah, sure. So in terms of early reading and later, like bad outcomes later on for these young people, what, do you have a hypothesis for what the mechanism might be? Well, I mean, I think there are probably a number. I think, you know, uh, one is that you know, how did they become early readers? For example, if uh, you got parents pushing them, isolate them from playing, from hanging out with friends, and they're all forced to do early reading, you know, remediation. So with the early on, they would have already developed certain, you know, habits, certain resistance, you know. But early reading, you know, uh, is associated with early re- success because, you know, you, you know, in schools, we value reading very much right now, and reading is really kind of uh, your gateway to other things right now in schools. Another one, you know, possible mechanism is that, uh, you know, early readers are considered smart, and then the parents will try to push you to become smarter and more academic, and therefore, again, you may be kind of isolated from uh, other social activities. You may be considered this kid, you know, the geekish kid who doesn't know anything else, and, and then and again, it's, it's uh, you can adjust that. You know, uh, another part, of course, you see, because earning readers have exhausted all their cognitive, emotional resources to guarantee their early education success. But by the time they, they become adults, they've lost interest. You know, so that you know they've discovered midlife crisis kind of things. I think there are many different ways to explain this. However, uh, we can't do uh, a randomized control to check any of the hypotheses. But it is probably true that you know we 
Like in China, I know we, we used to try to do those young geniuses, you know, like you know, 13 year olds going to college. So cognitively, you are really advanced, but uh, socially, you may not be. You know, that's what, what actually we we probably face. I don't know, in Australia, some uh, uh, eager parents like to have young geniuses and then make sure they're different from others and there may be some damages. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, when I read this uh, in the book, you know, early reading is associated with negative outcomes later on in life. I thought this, how can this be? So I was prompted to go and have a look at this study as well. And I think you've, you've identified many potential drivers that I, I did as well. Interestingly, I thought I'd point out that the, Parents, the parents were the people who reported when students started school and also when students uh, learned to read. And they reported these results at 12 years of age, when their young people were 12 years of age. And what they said was, on average, their child began to read 5.94 years earlier than the time of reporting. And they started, and they started school 5.97 years earlier than when reporting started. So if we do the maths, this means that on average, these high IQ, what they called precocious readers, could read within 11 days of first starting school, which suggests that the, the, you know, the link between early reading and, and later negative life outcomes, if that did exist, wasn't due to something that happened at school in their reading instruction unless it happened within those 11 days. So it's probably, as you said, something to do with the way that their parents are pushing these young people and which would potentially have negative impacts later on. So I definitely agree with you there. Yeah, and all, and all these kids, you know, you notice they were all really uh, middle-class suburban white kids, yep. you know, in the 1920s. So that's yep. uh, they are very different from uh, other, you know, uh, samples from other populations. So this is a very different population. But you, you could say the same right now. That's what I, I, mean, I wrote this really because I'm deeply concerned about this, uh, uh, this uh, unscientific fad about making sure every child can read by third grade, you know, that early reading. Because I think, you know, again, in Australia, Naplan, uh, in the U.S., and people are really pushing that, like in the state of Michigan, recently passed a law, if a child cannot read a uh, so-called, you know, passing test by third grade, they have to repeat, you know, another grade. Uh, is that a good thing or bad thing? Because actually we know retention in third grade can cause serious emotional damages to children because the, all their friends, peers are advanced and they are not. And also there's a policy, the policy has a escape clause to say, you know, parents, if they can make a good argument, their children can advance. That means the middle class, the white dominant who has the resources will convince schools to let their kids pass and the poor disadvantaged cannot pass. And will have to be retained. So that's, you know, in, in a way, it's more, for, I would say, discrimination, you know, excuse of rating scores. Yep, no, that's good. And, and the point you make there about the ability of, of kind of people with social and cultural capital already to kind of navigate tricky systems and how that increases disadvantage or, or gaps, achievement gaps, is, is an important one as well. There was one, one, third, one third and final point I really wanted to challenge within the book and that was as follows, and again, these are direct quotes. So you said, research has found that teaching decoding skills does not improve reading comprehension. And slightly later, you go on to say, therefore, effort and time devoted to learning decoding skills are time and effort away from actually learning to read. Tell us more about your understanding of this. 
Well, uh, here's actually, this is quite complicated. I don't know if, uh, because that was in the context of talking about the Reading First initiative in the U.S. And uh, because now there's one group of um, reading, uh, uh, you know, the re there's reading wars. So you have all this direct instruction people. I think in, the, uh, in Australia, Christopher Pine was pushing that for uh, poor kids, you know, rural kids, Aboriginal kids. Uh, in the U.K., they, they've been pushing for synthetic for, uh I think phonetics, you know, th those kind of ideas is that uh, you direct kids to, to decode. So that skill is, if you test that in the early grades, I think you, you direct instruction of decoding skills looks that good, but that's very mechanical, that you can decode. So when you decode that, but full reading comprehension after third or fourth grade actually has to do with content, with knowledge, and with interest in reading. And by the way, this is actually, I was uh, trying to analyze this to the Victoria government in Australia to say why you could try efforts to improve your NAPLAN younger grades. But once you, that, that, that uh, um, increase, that improvement disappears when you move to higher grades because higher grades reading tests something different. So when you are teaching kids those decoding skills and uh, that is uh, not helpful for the children to develop truly reading abilities. And I think I actually I should have added that because of ATI, some children, if they need an action decoding skills that might be helpful, uh, but in, in pushing everybody through that process, use that as a way to fix kids, and uh, is not understanding what reading means. Reading is much more than decoding, I think that's the, that's the point. Yeah, which I would definitely agree with, and I'm sure many listeners would be familiar with Goffin Tunmer's simple view of reading, which suggests that reading comprehension is the product, the multiplication of decoding ability multiplied by kind of oral language skills. So students have to be able to first decode, and if their decoding ability is zero, their ability to read is also zero, and then they have to be able to actually interpret the words that they're lifting off the page, which depends upon things like background knowledge which is something I spoke about in a lot of detail with Natalie Wexler um, two episodes ago. So um, I think we're in agreement in terms of, and, and that's supported by what you just said in terms of students in the early years in NAPLAN, if they get that, those decoding skills, yeah. then they can crack the code and then their, their, their reading improves. But later on, they start to get limited by their background knowledge because they can't interpret what they're reading, which supports, again, what you were saying happens in NAPLAN. So I'm glad we're in agreement there. Again, just felt challenged by the way it was represented in the book because that's a very quotable line. You know, effort and time devoted to learning decoding skills are time and effort away from actually learning to read. That's a quotable line and I was very worried when I was reading that that some people might take oh, that don't away. Worry, you can spread that because another thing to think about this is that, uh, you know, I think in education a lot of times we make, uh, uh, you know, uh, you know, uh, uh, you know, tempest in a teapot as a big storm. Like for example, reading skills. If you, a lot of the people do this, it's not that a big deal. But then people write books that develop textbooks and then make it a really big deal because acquiring reading skills sometimes can be implicit. You don't have to teach them. A lot of things we learn without being explicitly taught. And, you know, th so that's what I think sometimes in education, we we overly actually exaggerate certain things in our in, in, in children. Like for example, you know, another point I'm going to make is like an idea called design thinking. 
we overly exaggerate the whole process. But a lot of times, human thinking is very intuitive. It's not step-by-step analysis. You know, that's the kind of analysis. So we need to rethink about this. Like, you know, quite a lot of people are engaged in, they learn their own ways to master decoding. You know, that, that's how, how we do it. You know, you know, massive number of people learn to read without the so-called decoding skills. Yeah, I would definitely agree. I guess I've got some friends who work in schools who explicitly teach decoding and, and they, they would agree with you. You know, there's a certain proportion of students, maybe 70% of them, who just kind of pick up this decoding stuff as well. Exactly. But yeah, there's, yeah. you know, the remaining 30% or so who aren't going to do that without the explicit instruction. I guess the danger of not teaching all students these decoding skills early on is it's hard to identify who's picking it up naturally and who isn't in the early stages. And by the time you have done that, you know, you end up with these students in third grade, as you were you're speaking about, about earlier, who suddenly can't read and then they're getting held back and things like that. Whereas if you just well, kind of started of, of, with the baseline. That's the point of, of ATI, you know, they're called after treatment interaction. Now, that's, that's the precise is that some kids, you know, need it, some kids don't need it. And, you know, if you force kids who are already reading, you have to teach them, you know, these things. And uh, that's just, uh, uh, you know, a waste and also depresses those children. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I can see how that could be the case. I also see how kind of identifying who and who isn't um, doing well well on those decoding skills early on and early enough um, can be challenging. And also the, the practicalities of splitting students off, taking some students to other classes for the instruction and not can also be a challenge in some contexts. So as with all things in education, there are trade-offs and schools have to work out how to ensure that all students get the sufficient support to be able to read given the limited resources and time that teachers and school leaders have. So I think we're broadly in agreement. Exactly, yeah. Yes, yes, definitely, yeah. Fantastic. All right. So chapter seven, I really enjoyed chapter seven, and it was t- you, you mentioned this earlier, actually, the futile quest for the panacea. So I'd love for you to go into a bit more detail how you see the search for a panacea within education is really holding us back. Well, because you know, I think that this is, uh, as I started saying that, education, I think it's like, uh, today's education is like early days medicine. We think there's, there's some snake oil that can cure all disease without any side effects. And if you look at education, coming out, again, I'm, I'm going to use uh, your interview because a visible learning is such a big deal in Australia and the other places. So visible learning came out to claim to almost be like a panacea, right? We're going to solve all the problems, all those things. And, and we know it doesn't. You know, as we said, anybody in education knows it doesn't. So in early days, we, we adopt that. Government goes for it. Schools goes for it. And then gradually we discover it does not work. So then we kind of ditch it. Then we go back some old ideas, you know, and the revive again. That's the pendulum swing. And then we embrace uh, it as another panacea with great enthusiasm. We try it again. It's going to be coming out in with the new problems, you know, side effects emerges. And then we ditch it again. We go back to visible learning and we come back. So we're going through a cycles. So you know, that's what, you know, we, we search for panacea. I think it's best to accept that there's no panacea, everything that has effects and side effects. And then in order to advance, we try to, maximize the effect and minimize side effects. When side effects cannot be, you know, uh, avoided, then you seek alternatives. It's this, that's the same kind of idea, you know. For example, you know, you discover penicillin cannot be taken by every patient. You try to discover some other, other kind of antibiotics. 
So that's the, the idea why kind of the, the, the quest for, pan, uh, for panacea actually holds us back. Yep. Okay. And you kind of, I'll, I'll read another section. You talk about how the war between progressivism and academic traditionalism is the mother of all wars in education. You talk about how the division between progressive child-centered and inquiry-based education and academic curriculum-driven education is the power source that has fueled the reading wars, the maths wars, the battles over direct instruction versus inquiry-based learning, and the wars over standards and testing, and also over national curriculum. How do you see us globally moving beyond this false dichotomy? Well, I think, again, I would really uh, take the idea called, you know, side effects seriously say, okay, you know, for example, uh, maybe for some children, we do need direct instruction. For some knowledge, we do need you know, uh, this uh, direct instruction. And, but also at the same time, we know uh, that uh, different societies value different outcomes. So we, we need to be very honest to say, okay, what works for whom, under what context, for what uh, skills, domain, and in that way, and we also understand what doesn't work. So we try to uh, make it truly a, a science to get to the details. Say, well, can we tweak this? Can we tweak that? You know, so that kind of ideas to say, then we can move beyond that. You know, instead of trying to argue this, then because the idea about this this big uh, dichotomy is basically both sides or each side is arguing that they got the panacea, they got everything that solves all the problems. Okay. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. I did feel within your book, I did feel that you kind of focused the the studies you chose and the the instructional approaches that you chose to highlight the side effects on were ones that were more in line with traditional educational approaches. And you know, I was I visited probably one of the most progressive schools in Victoria the other day, and there in the in the waiting room was one of your books, World-Class Learners Educating Creative and Entrepreneurial Students. And I noticed in 2018, you also published a book called Reach for Greatness, Personalizable Education for All Children. So I guess I probably rightly feel that there was a sidedness to your book, which is totally fine. You know, you kind of pointed out side effects for direct instruction, testing and things like that, which we usually associate within with traditional education. So I guess I wanted to give you the opportunity today, if you want to, to talk about some of the side effects of progressive education, because that was something you didn't highlight in your book. And we've just talked about how um, looking at these side effects is something that can help us to find a healthy middle ground. Is there anything you'd like to offer in that space? Sure. I think, you know, you, you're, you're absolutely right. You know, you noted this decidedness because uh, there's another uh, kind of part of me is I'm always trying to trying to uh, point out the problems with whatever is popular, okay? So whatever is popular, I said, okay, I need to challenge that, you know? I need to, you know, more, almost like a, like a wake-up call when everybody's in a trance to say, oh, this is going to solve our problem, you know? Like growth mindset. I've been challenging growth mindset, challenging great, all those ideas, you know? So, the, I mean, progressive education... Again, this depends on your value. Okay, what do you value? For example, progressive education does not produce uh, good test scores. Students in, in the beginning, in the beginning of uh, a few years, they are they might struggle, they might suffer. You know, all, all those the, those kind of problems. We've we've seen that happening. And uh, you know, like uh, I put uh, you know in the book, I I think I wrote uh, a little bit about that. How you know, U.S. charter schools would not try to you know certain states would not authorize. Uh, uh, you know, um, 
Steiner would not authorize Montessori child center approaches because they do not produce immediate results. And that can be problematic in certain societies. For example, in, in China, Chinese education system, if children are selected from early on based on the test scores and they don't do well, and they will lose the opportunity for social mobility. You know, is that, and also if uh, progressive education, children choose to study what they want to study. And uh, for example, they don't like algebra two, but algebra two is required for, uh, for going to college and they will miss the opportunity for going to college. And that would uh, cause a lot of suffering, you know, within the system. And so there's, there's a lot of, you know, possible side effects, but also effects or side effects in education in a hard rent to define really because it's ultimately value driven. Yep, that makes that makes perfect sense. The side effects you talked about there um, were mostly to do with things that would stop young people from progressing more within the current paradigm. So you were saying basically if you're doing progressive education within a testing culture, you might not be that good at testing and that will stifle your development or sorry, your progression later on. Is there anything inherent that you think um, within progressive education that may not contribute to the development of an individual in a way that is kind of counterproductive? For example, and I don't know if there's any studies supporting this or anything like that, but could it be the case that providing young people with choice right from the outset means that they never have to do something that they don't like doing and therefore when they come to a job, or something like that, or a role in society where they actually do have to kind of toe the line at some point, or they do have to kind of just buckle down and do something they don't like for an extended period of time. They haven't developed that skill. I don't know if that's true. What What are your thoughts on that? Well, that's possible. Uh, that, that's definitely possible. So that's why we want to say, okay, I, I think there's nothing really called inherent, but you know, that, that model would create a, a free space. You would want to. Uh, you know, again, to address side effects, side effects can be minimized. So that maybe you can adopt certain approaches to say, okay, that element of education is infused to, to correct that. It's, uh, I, I think the, uh, again, you know, it's right, when I talk about child-centered versus in traditional curriculum, you know, I think the, the child-centered has definitely certain issues, like a total freedom uh, is not going to work. And so you need some kind of uh, uh, discipline demand requirement in the sense of uh, autonomy comes from res- comes with responsibility. You know, uh, total freedom comes with the certain accountability. So I think those both parts. So what I'm really hoping for is that, uh, you know, we would try to work on the potential side effects of any approach and try to minimize that without completely touting it as panacea or a total loss. Sure. And I'm sure there are ways around that, as you kind of alluded to there, for example, I can imagine you could say to a student, you can play any sport you want, but after you've chosen that sport, you need to stick it out for a whole season, whether you like it or not, or you can choose to learn any instrument, but once you've chosen, you have to stick with that instrument for a year and you have to practice X times each week because that's how we get better. And so that's maybe a balance of that choice in the outset, but then developing the grit and the persistence within. Yeah. Okay. So we've talked a lot about side effects and how they should be measured. And really, in the last chapter of your book, you talk about how we need to start to embed a consideration of side effects into kind of the approach to education research more broadly. Can you paint a, try to paint for us a vivid picture of how education research would look different 
if we did start to take better account of these side effects? Well, I mean, I think, you know, uh, uh, any study uh, should uh, um, try to report the, the side effects, should consider, you know, like, in, I mean, again, uh, I think I will use uh, Brisbane or not, I'm trying to pick on it because just this example may be relevant, uh, maybe relatable to a lot of people, is that if I were writing that, I would say, okay, I would reanalyze that, those, side, those effect sizes. You know, for example, uh, um, do the effect size work equally for all students, different backgrounds, different ages, different uh, subjects, different personality, and the different conditions? At, at, at the same time, I would probably try to report to say, okay, uh, does it uh, work equally? And when you increase the, the grades, does it hurt students' interest, curiosity, creativity? So I would try to report them and just caution people about those, those kind of things. I would report both. But also there should be a lot more studies, you know, trying to say, okay, yes, it works, but it hurts at the same time. You know, I, I, I use the title really because what works, uh, which is actually uh, uh, American, a U.S. Uh, federal initiative. They have this called What, work, what Works Clearinghouse on report studies uh, that have uh, uh, proven with good evidence to say it has impact on certain things. And that drives federal government funding because you want to apply for federal government money to implement educational strategies. You kind of have to prove you have that uh, evidence that shows it works. Uh, but that actually neglects to say, well, maybe you should say, it only works for certain students in certain characteristics, but it can harm others. So that's the kind of you know uh, information education researchers and uh, uh, policymakers need to provide to uh, customers, you know, which is students, parents, and school teachers. Sure. So the What Works Clearinghouse of the kind of the metrics that we would consider to be mo most robust within the stuff that the What Works Clearinghouse reports are things like results on standardized tests. Because standardized tests, they're standardized, they're externally marked, and also they're not super sensitive to individual intervention. So if you can move results on standardized tests, that suggests that there has been a significant academic kind of benefit of whatever you've done. Is there anything that you would love to see the What Works Clearinghouse also report in all of their studies? Are there any metrics you'd love them to regularly kind of consider or make a comment up, upon or anything like that? Well, I think there are two things which I mentioned in the book quite a lot is really called the, the ATI, you know. How is this effective or negatively effective on certain populations of students? So because we cannot use the average mindset, no student is a statistic probability. You know, and we need to, I want to say, how does this work for some students, but hurt other students, you know, uh, whatever characteristics they have. The second thing is the different outcomes, you know, that, you know, the cognitive outcome versus the uh, non-cognitive outcome, the short-term instructional outcome versus long-term educational outcome. For example, I would like to say, yes, this does, like, for example, direct instruction, or you can say uh, uh, the uh, decoding skills do help children learn to decode uh, words or learn to master math, you know, in, in the beginning, but they might lose ability, their, their ability to transfer, you know, their skills, their uh, interest and valuing of the subject declines in the, using the same approach. So I would say one along the lines of uh, 
the population, uh, uh, who, and otherwise along the outcomes of what. Yep, that's great. I'm hopeful that there that we have been progressing in the kind of aptitude treatment interaction vein. Um, actually, when I go back and look at some of the meta-analyses from the 80s and things like that, like some of Rosenshine's work, they did a fantastic job of of um, covering aptitude um, treatment interactions. And I would agree with you that especially the visible learning stuff does a pretty horrendous job of that it, to the extent of like things like combining the effect of homework across primary and secondary and things like that where we know the effects are different. Why would you group it into one box? The other thing you talked about there was the outcomes. Now, to my mind, part of the reason why in, in education, but also in society more broadly, we tend to focus on these kind of many of the outcomes that we do focus on is because they're much easier to measure. It's much easier to mark a maths test than it is to work out how, how the, a student's interest has changed towards mathematics or how their valuing of change has changed in terms of mathematics. And I think that that's kind of an intrinsic problem that it's always going to be hard to get around so what and this you know this relates to kind of non-cognitive skills and capacities as well they're very very hard to measure so what are your thoughts about how to get around that kind of that lack of balance between the ease with which we can collect data around cognitive and non-cognitive outcomes well i mean i, I think you know the uh, again it's like for example you know you're teaching math you know actually that's a lot of math interested in like you know you have the mathematical thinking skills uh, interest in math valuing math really enjoying math uh versus you know simply you know doing like uh, uh, uh master the math you know formula math facts you know those those are all different outcomes i think in even in math education uh there are different people proposing different outcomes i would like to say each like even, even australian curriculum can we kind of uh, make a list of all those outcomes and, and also really highlight not all the outcomes can go together, you know, right? You know, so so we, we, need, we need to really think about that. I think right now when people come out, they, they try to uh, either to say, okay, yes, my approach works for all the outcomes. Others come and say, well, you know, uh, you know mine really helps your students improve your, your math, you know, test scores, you know, but uh, uh, at the same time, you know, to say how, how we as uh, uh, informed you know, educators to say, okay, uh, we just need to understand this. You know, when we reporting, when we talk about math education, we need to ask you know, ourselves to say, what is, as far as I know, uh, uh, the best you know, math approach or best math outcomes we need to rethink about? You know? I mean, you're a math teacher, you probably know this very well, is that in a society, not everybody needs the same level of math. Not everybody needs the same math, you know, even that, that's, uh, that's very different. I think it's, uh, we need to reflect the thinking about the different competing outcomes in any subject. And how do you think we can get there? Do these changes need to be top down? Does the, you mentioned in the kind of changing curriculum, um, or, or do we need teachers to just start kind of collecting their own data or do we need large organizations like the What Works Clearinghouse to start to um, standardize what they report on? What are the kind of pathways you see to us getting to a, a greater consideration of uh, externalities or side effects? Well, I mean, in a sense that we would say, okay, everybody should uh, consider this, but then if you look at them, uh, where's the most possible place of change is that 
I think uh, the establishment is unlikely to, to make big changes. So my own bet is always from the public, the opinion. Parents, schools, teachers uh, demand to know the side effects of certain things. And that I would hope in a certain educational researchers would have voluntarily trying to began to consider side effects, you know, writing about them. And then possibly the educational research organizations, you know, that's the, you know, or, or leading uh, uh, an organization like the PISA, OECD, will do that. Of course, you know, you, you know, uh, ideally you got informed government and when they produce kind of policies to govern like uh, organization like what works uh, uh, clearinghouse to produce evidence of side effects or needs to to caution people about the side effects. I think it should it needs to be more of a social movement and uh, rather than just you know one or two because this is going to take a long time. Again, I want to go re- uh, go back to reference medicine that took a long time. About in medical research, the first thing you should worry about is what is not whether it's effective, but whether it causes harm. That's actually, that's a very total thing different. Because in, in education, the first thing we consider if it's effective. In medicine, the first thing they have to prove is it doesn't do harm. Yeah, and that's, um, I mean, that relates back to my chat with Dan Willingham, where he talks about the benefits of stripping things, bringing them down to really summarize what the benefits are, but then also flipping it and considering it from a different angle. So I think that's a helpful different angle to think about. If we were to forefront, what's the harm? we may come to different conclusions. Exactly, yeah, yes, yes. We might move into some closing questions now, Jung, if that works. All right, yeah. First closing question, what advice would you give to your younger self, Jung? You could pick a time, maybe like, it may like to be to your young Jung Zhao at school in China, or maybe early stage of your research, but what, what advice would you like to give? Well, I think, you know, uh, uh, if I were, uh, let's say if you put me back, you know, in terms of like maybe just as a younger researcher, like uh, I'd say 20 years ago, uh, uh, my advice would really probably, given what I know now, is to consider a broader range of educational outcomes. Because I was, as part of the, you know, the, the major mainstream researchers trying to prove how technology can be helpful, can be useful, and a lot of times without considering how at the same time it could cause harm. You know, because I used to be a big advocate for technology. Now I see technology uses can cause a lot of damages. So that's, uh, that's one area I would really want to advise myself and other young researchers to think about this. Great advice. What's your information diet like? Whose work do you find particularly inspiring? Are there people you follow on Twitter you get a lot out of? Tell us more about that. Well, there's not not one, you know. It's uh, because I, I well, first of all, I I read uh, very broadly. A lot of times, it's outside education. I find for me, history is always fascinating to me. Because, uh, you know, and uh, so I would say one of the uh, most important actually uh, uh, influencers to me, my thinking, one is uh, one called David Berliner as education researcher. You know, since the 1990s, he talks a lot. His book is called Manufactured Crisis. He really brought me to think about how do you reread data, you know. And then uh, another one is Jared Diamond's book, you know, Guns, Germs, and Steel. And uh, that really a different way of analyzing uh, history to, to take a very broader perspective on, on history and human development, on the ideas of, uh, of uh, 
what we are constrained by, but with that constraint, what human beings can do. And, and of course, right now, I mean, I, uh, a lot of my source coming from, uh, uh, from various sources, students, I, I interact with a lot of students and teachers, I talk a lot of them. And just to, you know, get me to think about different things. Um, but also a big piece of me is always looking for uh, books, writings that challenge the, you know, uh, the, the trends, the, the popularity. Something else Jared Diamond emphasizes a lot because I've found his work very influential as well is the importance of culture. And I, and I guess that's something that really comes out strongly in your work as well. Mm -hmm. What are you particularly excited about at the moment? Well, I'm, uh, I'm really excited about uh, right now that uh, I've been working uh, on the idea of uh, both the side effects, but otherwise written about um, how do you get uh, create opportunities for students to, to really uh, become themselves, to serve others. So being, uh, you know, based on my book, the uh, world-class learners, educating entrepreneurial and creative students, as well as reach for greatness. I've been developing uh, programs and curriculum, working with the many schools in Australia, China, and the U.S. to create opportunities for students truly to exercise their uh, uh, self-determination, autonomy, and liberate themselves. And uh, this actually may, uh, again, have side effects in the long run, but right now, because they're so constrained by the traditional schooling system, uh, being able to create freedom uh, for students to become truly leaders of their own, to become change partners of schooling. And that's happening a lot. So I'm uh, very excited about uh, this actually a classroom and school-based uh, interventions and innovations. I'm, I have the good fortune to work with many schools that really excites me. Fantastic. And do you have any final calls to action, Jung? Anything you'd like listeners to go away today and do? Well, I think, you know, uh, this is a tough time, you know, it's uh, especially with the global uh, political situation. Uh, I think uh, this is also a tough time because we are uh, facing a lot of uh, um, pressure to think about the future because of artificial intelligence, smart machines. I think uh, educators, education policymakers uh, are faced with uh, huge challenges of, you know, traditional uh, um, achievement gaps, traditional problems, but also about the future, how do we prepare kids for the future? This is the time that I think policymakers, educators should avoid trying to find panacea, should try to avoid buying into one approach, two approaches, and to really understand education is in a human business, human beings are diverse, and whatever we prescribe for our children when you think about effects and side effects. Yungjiao, thank you so much for your time today. It's been an absolutely fascinating discussion. I enjoyed your book. I did find various sections of it quite challenging, as, as you would have picked up from our discussion. But I've really appreciated the flexibility of our conversation today and also the nuance and sensitivity that's come out through this dialogue that I feel that we've had. One thing that I really appreciate you emphasizing was the role of values. And you continually came back to the idea that education is a value-based thing. And in terms of answering the question of what works, we always need to add the kind of classifier of for what purpose. Another thing that I really appreciated you brought out was the idea of balance. And you talked about you seeing as your own, your own role as kind of working out the current momentum of a given educational system 
and trying to help just twist that or help people kind of look over their shoulder and see what might be missing. And I guess I could think of this in two ways. There's people within education who kind of work to kind of create divergent thinking and get people to look more broadly. And there's also people who drill down and help people determine, define and work out better ways of doing thing X, Y, Z. I definitely would categorize you as someone who, and from our discussion today, I can see you're someone who's trying to help us all open our eyes to other possibilities. And it's clear that you're doing that very, very well. So thanks for your work. I found this discussion very enriching. I hope you have too. And we look forward to seeing what you, what you do in future. Thank you very much. You have the very, very good thoughtful questions and I really enjoy the conversation. Thank you for joining us for this episode of the ERRR podcast with Yung Jiao. As always, you can find show notes with links to all the resources that were mentioned at ollilovell.com. And if you'd like to help the ERRR podcast to keep on keeping on, or if you'd like to make a third year anniversary contribution, please go to patreon.com forward slash ERRR to make a small monthly contribution to the show. Even the price of coffee each month would mean a great deal to me. Please share this episode with friends and colleagues if you got something out of it. And if you got any suggestions for future guests you'd like to hear on the ERRR podcast or any comments, I'd love to hear from you. Please reach out via Twitter or email. I'm at Ollie underscore Lovell on Twitter or Ollie at OllieLovell.com via email. In fact, I had three fans independently message me to suggest having you on the show, which is what first brought my attention to his work. So please do keep those suggestions and recommendations coming in. Thanks for your time and listening today. Have a wonderful week. And until next time, keep learning. This podcast is part of the Australian Educators Online Network, aeon.net.au. Mm-hmm.